0: So when you're at sea on a ship, often you're like going to a station, you're stopping, you're getting the water you need, and then you're off to the next one because it's so expensive to be out at sea that like you're trying to to maximize your time out there. Hi, I'm Karina Giefrecht. Um I study diatoms uh, up in the Arctic. i biological oceanographer. I also sometimes refer to myself as a biogeochemist. <laughs>
1: Welcome back to Below the Tide. My name is Liz, and you are listening to episode six. This episode is our final episode with Karina. So, if you haven't listened to episode four and five, I would recommend going back and listening to those so that you can get kind of the overview of her research and some of her stories from the Arctic. As with all my episodes, resources will be posted on my Instagram page at Below the Tide Podcast. Check those out if you want to follow along with some definitions for some of the terms we use. But other than that, you are all set. Grab a coffee and enjoy. And so how did you get into this stream of research? Kind of like where were you 10 years ago and how did you get here?
0: Um, So I actually did my undergrad in chemistry with Mm -hmm. like no thought of going into oceanography at all. Um, I got into chemistry in high school because I just really enjoyed it. And then as I was finishing up my undergrad degree I was thinking about grad school but I was finding that like all the projects I was looking at in um you know chemistry I couldn't see the point of it like why would I go study like or like try to synthesize this compound like for what like how am (laughs) I contributing to society um, and it was actually a senior lab instructor in the chemistry department that like pointed me to earth and ocean science, because when I was talking to her about this, she said, sounds like you want to do more like applied chemistry. And like she knew of other students who had come to the department, so she said, check it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's when I found my master's supervisor's research, like Roberta Hom. Um, and one of the projects that she had, so Roberta studies gases in seawater, Um, And one of the projects she had was comparing all of these methods for biological productivity. So that's essentially like measuring the growth rate of phytoplankton. And so there's lots of different ways that people can measure it. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the ways is using gases. Okay. Um, So because phytoplankton produce oxygen, which is a gas, it gets dissolved in seawater. So you can like, you could measure the just absolute change in oxygen over a period of time. And that could tell you, um, you know, what their growth rate is. Or what Roberta did, um, or still does, um, is she would measure, it's the oxygen to argon ratio. And so oxygen and argon have very similar uh, like solubilities in seawater. So they have mm-hmm. similar properties, physical mm-hmm. properties. Um, so if you measure the ratio of the two, because argon isn't produced by anything biological in okay. seawater. Um, but oxygen is when you sort of like measure their ratio, what you're left with is the biological oxygen. Mm -hmm. And so it's a way to get at that same productivity rate, but in a almost easier way because you don't have to like incubate a sample. You don't have to like let things grow for a period of time. You can just straight up go out, do a measurement and then through some calculations get at that rate. Um, And the rate that you get is sort of representative of the past two weeks in the water. Mm-hmm. um so wow. yeah it is very very cool stuff um and then the idea was to take that method, which was fairly new um and compare it to other more standard methods, which was like incubations mm-hmm. and there's lots of different types of incubations you can do, so there's the one I described where like you can measure the change in oxygen or you could measure some change, say like even just in the biomass how much it accumulates but the changes are usually kind of small and the methods aren't quite precise enough to really get a good measurement of it. So what people have done since like the fifties is they use different types of isotopes and you can put them into the bottle and like, for instance, they could use, um, carbon 14, which is radioactive, for mm-hmm. example. So they put that in and then they use inorganic carbon. So like CO2, cause that's what the phytoplankton are going to take up, right. um, and then because that's labeled, and then they're going to incorporate that into their like organic matter, so into like the particles. Mm-hmm. Um, after a period of time, you can then filter out those particles and measure the radioactivity. That of those particles, pro- yeah, of those particles, okay. and then get at the rate.
1: Yeah,
0: um, and so that is a method that's been used. I guess it's been more than 50 years because it's 2021. 20, <laughs> 70 years, like yeah. since the 50s. Um, and then there's also people started moving towards stable isotopes because you know radioactivity oh. um, <laughs> <laughs> so there's like carbon 13 is another one um, nitrogen 15 so like nitrogen is a nutrient another thing that you know phyto- we all need to mm-hmm. to grow um, but uh, phytoplankton use um, and one of the things I did during my PhD was to use uh, radioactive silicon because I was looking at diatoms and they have that silica shell. Right. And so I could use silicon 32 was the isotope I used, but I would spike a sample, I would incubate it for a period of time and then because the diatoms incorporate silica into their shells, I could measure the radioactivity and specifically know how much diatoms are growing versus like how much all the phytoplankton are growing. Right. Because not all phytoplankton need silica. Okay. So that I that's something that like really got me interested in the PhD research I was doing. But yeah, so that's that's sort of how I ended up in oceanography. I was doing that project on biological productivity. Um I thought phytoplankton were amazing. Um and then from there I found out about like more specifically diatoms and like all these other things. Like all the groups. It's sort of like it started with phytoplankton and then I got into more of the nitty gritties and I was like, this is so cool <laughs> And uh you yeah. found the niche. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so that's that's sort of how I ended up going in, in that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and
1: what does, you were saying incubation, what does incubation look like when you have a sample?
0: Yeah, so um, people do it in a number of different ways. The kind of standard way that it's done is to have this giant uh, acrylic or like plexiglass tank mm-hmm. that you would just put out on the deck of a ship or wherever you are um, and have Seawater running through it at a constant temperature to try and mimic the like temperature conditions of wherever you took the sample from because we're going to be taking samples throughout the water column usually right. of the ocean so the and we want to focus on the the top layer where light is actually penetrating mm-hmm. um, and then you 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 know take your sample put it in a bottle put it into this tank and let it incubate for a period of time now the other thing is when you're taking samples from the ocean and you're taking them like from different depths, light is not the same at every single depth. So you also are trying to mimic the light conditions. Cause if you just took a sample, you know, from quite deep in the water where the light is not getting down very far and then put it into an incubator at like surface light conditions, probably the organisms there are gonna be like, ah, <laughs> and like <laughs> not, not grow properly. Cause that's way too much light than what they're used to. Um, so, you can either use, like, window screening to, like, block some of the light. Oh, yeah. That's the really, like, basic way, like, I just need to do this sort of thing. And I, I did those kind of incubations. Or you can get fancy and you can start using, like, um, film, like, photographic film. Right. Um, to You can use neutral density film to block some of the light. But then because of, like, you know, light's a spectrum, it's mm-hmm. a rainbow, and not all light, like, all colors of light are going to get to every depth of the water column. So some... Um, falls off sooner than others so you can use like colored films to sort of replicate okay deeper here in the water column like not as much light is getting through so um, we'll we'll block off those those parts of the spectrum and, mm-hmm. and more accurately mimic things Yeah. Um, but yeah ultimately it comes down to you've got this big tank you've got probably some tubes or like bags or something that has window screening or film mm-hmm. you put your samples in there you let them sit for some period of time and then once they're done you take them out you filter the water so you can get the particles um, and then you measure something on those particles yeah um,
1: wow so you're basically kind of like putting blackout blinds yeah on a tank yeah kind of thing to make them feel like they're still in yeah th- their make home. them feel at home <laughs>
0: <laughs> there's so like another way to do it that's a little more challenging is you can actually like get the bottles and put them right back into the natural environment, like on a long line and mm-hmm. kind of attach them to a line and let them incubate there. But then that requires you to stay in one place. Um, right. And so when you're at sea on a ship, often you're like going to a station, you're stopping, you're getting the water you need, and then you're off to the next one mm-hmm. because it's so expensive to be out at sea yeah. that like you're trying to to maximize your time out there. So just hanging out for a day, Sometimes it happens. Sometimes, yeah. like depending on the project, you might actually want to sample over like the sa- the same place over a period of time, and so that sort of thing will work. But um, it doesn't always. But I would say that's probably the most accurate way of doing it, but also the most challenging because mm-hmm. you don't want to lose your float that has the, yeah, <laughs> the has bottles all of your on samples. it. <laughs> yeah, one of my lab mates actually was doing something like that. She was up in Cambridge Bay in the Arctic, um, doing incubations. And she was mostly just doing stuff at the surface, so she had made herself a little float that mm-hmm. she could attach the bottles to and everything. And this was, like, during the ice breakup. So it was, like, before the ice broke up, during the ice breakup, and after. And she lost her float. Um, they managed to recover it eventually, yeah. but because of the the ice broke up so quickly, like, overnight, that it, like, floated away from where it was supposed to be. And, oh, no. Uh, yeah. So oh. it can definitely happen. I, yeah. And, yeah, it's just... Being in the field. Things go wrong.
1: What would you say like one major setback you experienced in your research was?
0: Hmm. Um, So (laughs) One one setback was close to the end of my degree um, and not so much like a research setback so much Mm -hmm. as like caused by the science as uh, I Got pregnant as I was about to like start writing up my dissertation and so it was like okay I've got nine months to finish my degree because I did not want to still be a PhD student with a baby Mm -hmm. and that was just that was my own thing yeah Um, and uh, yeah I was I was working I mean in some ways it's a bit standard I think for like as you're starting to write up your dissertation or like your your master's thesis It's just long days of sitting at the Mm -hmm. computer writing. But it was like, you know, 14 hour days of just like constantly thinking about my research and on and on. And I was a week away from uh, submitting my dissertation to my committee. And then it would be six weeks before I could defend. And I had it all sorted out. I was due at the end of October. So I was going to be submitting um, at the beginning of August. And then I would be able to defend um, in early October, and then I would be done and I could have my baby and everything would be great. Um, and then I had a preterm labor, sh- labor scare and was put in the hospital for a month. I was on bed rest, not allowed to do anything. Mm. Um, so I was stuck in the hospital uh, with a worry that my daughter would be coming early. yeah, um, so like everything got put on hold. Mm-hmm. and uh, it was it was a scary time. Um, uh, she didn't come. <laughs> and then the doctor sent me home and told me to like continue to take it easy Mm -hmm. and by that point i was on medical leave for my degree and uh just because of the way timing was going to work with paying tuition fees and i didn't want to try to defend my dissertation with a like one month old i decided to like wait Mm -hmm. um uh, until the next semester to defend um but i i finished so during that period between when i was sent home and when my daughter was actually born i finished my dissertation and like had it ready to submit yeah. um but otherwise i was just twiddling my thumbs and then in the end i was induced so like <laughs> just to like add insult to injury like she didn't even come which is 100% not her fault but just like very ironic and then yeah. like yeah the I could I could go into the birth side of things, which are also a bit (laughs) dramatic. But anyway, she's happy and healthy, and everything worked out in the end. But like a major setback for me um, Mm -hmm. was was all of that. And
1: uh, well, I think a lot of people forget that scientists are also people. Yeah, you know, and like these things happen. Yeah, you know, and now you've got a daughter. Yeah, but at the time, you're probably like pulling your hair out, being like. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people consider their PhD kind of as their baby. It's like this thing that they've been working on. 100%. Yeah. And you kind of want to finish that up. And then suddenly you've got a real baby coming. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, uh, like, I I definitely look at my, like, my master's thesis and my dissertation, like, as my babies Mm -hmm. because you just put so much time and effort and, like, care into them um, that, yeah, it was, it was really hard for me to mm-hmm. like, and I had, I had set probably unrealistic expectations about what I was able to, mm-hmm. you know, accomplish in the time, which I kind of look back and laugh at myself that I was just naive because now having a small child is like, yeah, don't have expectations. <laughs> like. Things are just not going to happen the way that you plan them to, unless you factor in like a lot of extra time. Mm-hmm. Like even getting out of the house in the morning is like I need at least fifteen minutes buffer time for yeah. just children, <laughs> which is like is totally fine. And mm-hmm. I think it's adjusting expectations. But yeah, yeah, back then it's like oh yeah, no problem. I'll defend you know beginning of October and she's I'll due at the end and when uh, I'm
1: about to pop yeah yeah
0: should should be okay like I was making jokes about like don't ask me questions that are too hard (laughs) don't want to send me into labor too early oh my gosh (laughs) yeah but
1: uh yeah but but, yeah people forget that scientists also have lives yeah a lot of them have families that they go home to yeah um a lot of them have to do research cruises while there's kids at home yeah but I guess you didn't have to. You I
0: I didn't I didn't really have to do that because yeah. most of this was all done before my daughter was born and yeah. now with the position I have I still get to go out on mm-hmm. ships but they're day cruises which yeah. I love like it's the it's perfect for me right yeah. now um, to to sort of still be able to get out on the ocean and like do the sampling and now I get to share share mm-hmm. it with you know the next the next group of uh, oceanographers um and and teach them but i can still come home at night and like see my daughter because Mm -hmm. especially right now i i can't imagine leaving her for like several weeks Mm -hmm. um to go be at sea i probably get better sleep (laughs) (laughs) but uh yeah it's it's hard to think about and people do it you know Mm -hmm. and and i i totally respect that but Mm. i i know for me i i wouldn't be able to do it so that's fair yeah Yeah. and i i think that's that's a big part of science is uh there can sometimes be a lack of recognition for like that work-life balance Mm -hmm. um because i don't know i think it can be really easy to sort of lose yourself in in the science like Mm -hmm. i i find it easy like if there's something i'm interested in it's it's like just get focused on it and that's all i want to think about but um there there are other other parts to life and those are important too like i i think that's definitely i feel like i'm rediscovering myself a little bit since i finished grad school Mm -hmm. that like i spent so much time so focused on it um because i love it Mm -hmm. um but i didn't necessarily keep a good balance there um so now it's like oh yeah i you know I like playing the piano and like riding my bike and and all this stuff that I I didn't do as much because it mm-hmm. was just like nope, got to go to see, got to yeah. go do this. Very um, busy. Yeah, but I also like so many amazing opportunities that mm-hmm. came up. Like going to conferences too. Like I've gotten to go to all these really cool places. Yeah. Um, like I went to Spain. I went to Corsica in France for. Um, Uh, sort of like field school Mm -hmm. um for for grad students um i got to go to switzerland to like analyze samples
1: nice
0: and uh i'm so thankful for 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 all of that Mm -hmm. i'm also thankful that i was able to do all of that before my daughter was born because Mm -hmm. now it's sort of like i can move on to that next phase of life and be Mm -hmm. okay with it yeah yeah (laughs) like yeah there's there's all these really cool opportunities and for people that are able to take them mm-hmm. it's it's really neat
1: yeah well I think yeah. also a lot of people like one of the reasons that I started this podcast was because a lot of people have questions about marine science and a lot of people don't realize that a marine scientist isn't only someone who's looking at whales right you know yeah And there's so many realms of marine science totally that people don't know about and the importance of diatoms is equal to the importance of the orcas and their lifestyle because everything is so intertwined
0: yeah yeah for sure i think that's what really like appeals to me about Mm -hmm. ocean science is like it is so interdisciplinary Mm -hmm. so like you do need to understand the physics and the chemistry Mm -hmm. of the ocean to like understand the biology but if you don't understand the biology you like the biology is affecting the chemistry yeah um maybe not so much the physics but (laughs) you never know um and uh, yeah, it's just like i I love that about it because mm-hmm. it does pull in all of these different aspects of like things I've learned about and apply them to something that's like tangible, mm-hmm. and I feel like you know the work that we do as oceanographers is is making a difference in mm-hmm. the world, um so yeah, yeah,
1: one diatom at a time,
0: exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Thank you for joining us for episode six of Below the Tide. I hope you enjoyed and stay tuned for the next episode next Thursday. My name is Liz and you can follow Below the Tide on Instagram at Below the Tide Podcast for all the updates for every episode. Have a nice day.